Uh, welcome to The Brook. My name is Richie Cable, one of the pastors here at the church. Honored, excited that we could connect together in this way for this moment. If you have a Bible, go ahead and grab it and meet me in the Gospel of Matthew. Now, the Gospel of Matthew is where we're going to be specifically chapter 9. We are winding down our series, A People, A People, where we have been walking through the marks that mark us, man, and move us forward as we seek to grow A People from all people passionate for God. We've been unpacking the values, which are also our vehicles for growth personally and collectively, as we wind down this series, we're going to be unpacking the value that our neighbor's good is as important as our own. Our neighbor's good is as important as our own. Really, that value is birthed from this compelling picture scattered throughout the scriptures called flourishing, human flourishing. Uh, not only is it birthed from that picture, it's really birthed from the clear uh, and compelling command that God gives his people uh, to love their neighbors as themselves, uh, to, to love them with the sincerity and the dignity that we would direct and want directed towards ourselves. That, that births this value. But let's, let's talk about flourishing a little bit. Let's, let's dive into that. Flourishing is this vision of the good life. It is this vision of beauty and good experienced by us in rich, ever-increasing ways. That is flourishing. And everybody everywhere has some way that they talk or think about flourishing. But if you if you trace honestly all of the pictures of flourishing that exist, all billions of them, right? There's some commonalities between them. Let me show you. Between everybody's picture of flourishing, what you find is there is this desire and pursuit of peace with God. So even if you don't believe that God is personal or knowable, you believe more in a higher power or force that runs things and keeps things moving, you still want peace with that higher power or force. Case in point, think about the way that we talk and the ways that we act whenever uh, there's anxiety or tension, when we're afraid of something happening, we'll say, knock on wood. And then if you're more in this Miami space, you may even do stuff like say, yo, I'm just going to keep putting good vibes out there, sending out good vibes in hopes that I would receive good vibes back. And that's a version of karma. It is what it is, but it is a way to have peace with God, even if we don't believe he's knowable or personal. And if we do believe he's knowable or personal, often we try to have peace in, with God through ritual and routine, through acts of service, really try to keep them distant. <laughs> you stay over there and let me do my thing. But in everybody's picture of flourishing, there is this element of peace with God where things are copacetic. We're okay. But not only is there peace with God that we could trace, there's some other commonalities. There's this commonality of functional, life-giving relationships. We want significant relationships that work well and provide vitality and meaning. Now, we realize that there's going to be tension, so it's not that we want things perfect, we just want things to be work, 
the work. <laughs> we want them to be worth the work. Say that five times fast, right? In our relationships. And nobody really, now some people are attracted to it, but nobody really wants dysfunction. We may have a nose for nonsense. We may find ourselves in dysfunctional relationships, but even so, we want functional, life-giving relationships, and it shows up in our picture of flourishing. There's some more commonalities that show up. One of them is significant purpose. We want meaningful experiences and meaningful work, and we want to matter to the work that we do. We want to accomplish greatness, significant purpose. You, you talk to any first grader anywhere, you notice, I notice, and you ask them, like, man, what do you want to be when you grow up? None of them are going to be like, man, you know what? I spent this time contemplating this question in between naps. And what I arrived at was I want to be a serial killer. Like, I want to grow up and be the next Jeffrey. Like, nobody talks like that. That's weird. That's crazy. We said, man, I want to grow up. I want to be an astronaut. I want to be president. I want to be a king. I want to be Goku from Dragon Ball Z. I want to be Astro Pokemon. Like, we want greatness, significant purpose. The last thing that I think we could trace um, within all of these pictures of flourishing is this idea of common good. We want a shared experience of goodness that exists beyond us. We actually want to move the world forward towards good. So even if it's the basics of like, we want to be voice and visibility, advocate for those who are vulnerable. We want to champion that which we would say is civil rights. People want common good. Now, the reason why I believe that the traces of peace with God, functional life-given relationships, significant purpose, and common good can be found in every single picture of flourishing is because they could be found in every single human heart, the desire for those things. And if we look courageously, we will see that there is a thread from the desires in our heart to the offers God makes. The offer and promises of God in the kingdom bring about flourishing in its truest sense. We know this to be true because one, from the beginning of human history, God has announced this idea of human flourishing and goodness and beauty to be experienced by humans in a full way. So he creates this glorious world that's beautiful and good and says, you can enjoy all of that. And as he creates man, he says, let us make man in our likeness and in our image, that there's this uniqueness to man. And when you have God, Adam, and Eve in the garden, he says, we have relationship and there's Peace, he blesses them. Peace with God. But not only that is present from the beginning of human history, but you have Adam looking at Eve and not seeing anything in her that would cause him to recoil or resort to hiding because he's afraid. It says that they were naked and unashamed, completely vulnerable, existing in this functional, life-giving relationship. Not only that, he, God tells them, yo, 
there's these commandments that I'm going to give you. Don't eat of this tree because if you eat of this tree, you're surely going to die. And so I don't want death for you. I want life. And so, in fact, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, bring beauty and goodness and greatness, bring order out of chaos in the same way I did when I said, let there be significant purpose. And in doing so, in filling the earth, being fruitful and multiplying, bringing beauty out of what is chaotic, you are producing greater experiences of goodness that the future will get to enjoy, common good. It is wired in every human heart. It was present at the beginning of human history. God announced it, but man rejected it. It was in the garden and we said, no, God. And as a result, all of us are stained by sin. And so we redefine and rewire how we think about flourishing and even where flourishing comes from. And there's all of these broken reflections of it, but God doesn't look at us in the brokenness of our sin and the foolishness of our acts. Rather, he continues to announce goodness. And so he makes a promise. He says, I am going to send a seed that is going to deal with all of this. And then you get to Jesus, enter Jesus, and he stands up. And he also makes this glorious, good pronouncement. He says, the spirit of God is upon me to proclaim the good news. Then he starts to unpack the variety of the elements regarding this good news, like healing the sick, setting the captives free, mending that which is broken, making right that which is wrong in a comprehensive way. And he says the starting point of this renewal is the sick dead, broken, wrong relationship between God and man because of their rejection. And the pathway to it is going to be my life, death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel. Inviting people into relationship, inviting people into a family if they receive it, inviting people into what is affectionately known as the kingdom and the summation of flourishing. A kingdom, what at its very center is Jesus the king and his ethics, of which this guiding, grounding ethic to love God with the entirety of who we are and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Thus, the value being core to seeing this vision of flourishing come to be and experienced in the here and now, and over the, first of all, we could just end the sermon there. <laughs> we could just end the sermon there and just sit and soak in that. But over the next few weeks, we're going to dive deeper and deeper into flourishing and how this guiding, grounding ethic of our neighbor's good is as important as our own, is critical in the here and now. And we're going to continue to unpack the ways that we cultivate that value. So within every value, there's streams or rhythms that we use to continue to grow that value. The starting point for this value is to see through God's eyes. See through God's eyes. Seeing through God's eyes is to adopt God's perspective and the subsequent actions that should follow.
to see through God's eyes is to adopt God's perspective and the subsequent actions that should follow. And when I search the scriptures, I feel like one of the greatest expressions of this idea of seeing through God's eyes is found in Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9 is on the heels of uh, this powerful discourse, the Sermon on the Mount, where like, there's wide agreement that Jesus is unpacking, unfolding his vision of the kingdom, this expansive picture of what the kingdom is like, who the kingdom is, is, is for, and what kingdom citizens, the people of God, should do and live in light of its greatness. And on the heels, we get this critical juncture in the life and ministry of Jesus where we are able to be drawn into his perspective and some actions that change everything. In fact, the flow of our time is going to be answering a few questions. How did Jesus see the people? What did that produce? And then what might that mean for us? That's going to be the flow of our text and our time. How did Jesus see the people? What did that produce? And what might that mean for us as we seek to cultivate this value, starting with seeing through God's eyes? It's only three verses, but it's it's rich. So read with me and then we'll take it bit by bit. Um, Verse 35 starts off like this. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them. If you make notes in your Bible, underline that. He had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Man, it's a lot. Let's let's get to work. Matthew 9 situates us in this critical juncture where we get to be pulled in to the very heart of God, and we get to live out the pattern that he gives us. And so Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, and Matthew chapter 4, verse 28, their same phrase is being repeated. Jesus went through all of the villages, all of the cities, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every disease, and healing every affliction. The repetition of that phrase, that statement, serves as what we know is called an inclusio. An inclusio is a literary device employed to really bracket or bookend a main idea. So Everything that happens between chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, and chapter 9 is the author, Matthew, going deeper into the various elements of Jesus going throughout the cities, going throughout the villages, teaching and proclaiming, healing, 
afflictions and disease. And what is emphasized in that perspective and that ministry is just the greatness of the king and the kingdom ethic and this vision of flourishing. There's a pivot that takes place after this. And what happens is there's a new element of Jesus's ministry that starts to become emphasized. You get a blitz of all of these parables. You get this blitz of these confrontations, these contentious interactions between Jesus and the quote unquote so-called leaders of the people. You get a blitz of these weird, fascinating, humbling interactions between Jesus and his disciples, you get this showcase of this king who is walking this contentious road with compassion heading towards a cross. But there is a shift that happens here, a shift that we feel when we answer the question, what does this mean for us? What might this mean for us? But before we get there, the perspective of God is worth exploring to see with his eyes. The perspective God has, Jesus has in this text is constructed by the assessment that he makes as well as the actions that he takes. The assessment that he makes um, is verse uh, 36. It reads like this. Um, When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So the people of God of old, the Israelites, were agricultural people. And so within the scriptures, you have image after image, illustration after illustration that reflects agricultural themes. It's God using the culture that they're in to communicate to them in an effective way, communicate ideas about who he is, about who they are, about how he wants to relate to them as well as the world around them. And what rises to the surface within this image and illustration usage is this idea of shepherding and sheep. It is this comprehensive guidance and care by coming alongside somebody so that they can live life as God intended. This comprehensive guidance and care coming along someone, coming along people to move them towards the life that God would have for them is shepherding. And when he is making this assessment, he is saying that the shepherding that is supposed to be taking place is not happening. And as a result, people are harassed. That means they are being taken advantage of. People are helpless. That means they are not, they have no power or assistance to move towards the life God would have for them. They are afflicted. He is seeing the dire comprehensive circumstances of the people. He's seeing the problem. Continuing in pain, he's also seeing the solution. That's reflected in the action that he takes. Pray that God would send more laborers, more people who will come alongside to shepherd, to care, to move others towards life. There's not only thing that he's seeing there, he's seeing the sin 
of a certain group of people. Now, he's clearly seen the sin within the sheep. We know that from Matthew chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, where it's talking about who will this seed be. You will call him Jesus, Matthew 1, 21, because he will save his people from his sins. And so the, the, the sheep aren't sinless, but there is a different indictment that is being noticed here. We should take note of that in the course of the life of the people of God, God regularly has to rebuke their so-called leaders. Ezekiel 34 demonstrates this, where God comes down and he says, my leaders, my shepherds are not seeking the welfare of the sheep. And as a result, the sheep suffer and they wander on every high hill. Every time we see high hill throughout the scriptures, that's to signify this idea of idolatry, rejecting the God who is for the gods we create. And he's saying this is tied to poor, self-serving shepherds. So there's an indictment here. He's not just seeing the plight of the people. He's seeing the sin of the shepherds. Yet... There's more going on that just allows us to see with his eyes. He's not just seeing the problems. He's not just seeing the problem makers. He's not just seeing the solutions as if people were projects, but he is seeing them as people. He's seeing them with names and stories. We know this to be true because everybody saw the same crowds. Yet the text takes note of how Jesus responded in light of what he saw, that he didn't just see a sea of people. He did see a sea of names and stories and souls, people with dignity. Jesus sees people with all of their dignity. He sees the realness of all of their pain, and he sees the possibility of them receiving the solution, which is to be moved towards life with God. It's not the only thing though. He, the sight of God, the sight of God sets a standard. I like optical illusions, I do. Um, Rorschach test where you have that big ink block like on a sheet of paper and it's like you look at it somebody asks you what do you see you're like man I see fluffy rainbows or animals all that weird yeah and it's really to just kind of show what's going on inside of your heart and your 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 mind and there's some other optical illusions there's that one picture is a very famous one where uh, depending on how you look at the picture you may see uh, this old lady that looks like the witch from Hansel and Gretel or you'll see like this young uh, beautiful aristocrat uh, but it really is depending on your vantage point and all optical illusions exist to essentially say how you see something differs from person to person and that's okay. That ain't this, that is not this at all. God's standard is not an optical illusion that we get to pick and choose what we see. There's a clarity of how Jesus is seeing people, how Jesus is seeing the situation and then what he's going to do. He sees people in all of their dignity. He sees all of their pain and plight and he sees the ongoing solution of presence. And we don't have the freedom 
as a people of God to recreate the sender and to rethink what God's sight for people actually is, but it moves him to response. Had you underline it, I'll read it. He had compassion for them. He had compassion for them. The response is multifaceted, centering around this idea of compassion. There is this visceral, emotive response deep in the core of the heart of Christ. Compassion. Compassion has inward elements and outward elements. When you look at it from the vantage point of what's happening inwardly, compassion is this emotional intensity, this feeling, this experiencing of somebody else's pain, as well as this eagerness for them to desire good compassion. In fact, um, like in Hebraic thought, compassion uh, shares the same word, root word as womb. And so the word for compassion in Hebrew is rahim, and the word for womb in Hebrew is rahim. And so like there's this shared concept and idea that compassion exists in the very center of a person. It comes from deep inside. It's intense, it's visceral, it's hyper-emotive, it's feeling, it's motherly. This is why Jesus in Matthew 23, when he is looking at Jerusalem, getting ready to go to the cross, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kills her prophets and stones those who are sent to care for you. How I've longed to gather you like a, like a mother hen gathers her children, but you wouldn't let me. I had this emotional intensity for your good. Compassion, examining it from the inward vantage point. But there's more to compassion than that. So I'm a crier. I mean, like nasty cry, like, you know, and I don't, I don't cry for everything, but there are moments where my eyes just start sweating and I can't help it. I've been told that sensitivity is my superpower and it is what it is. Now, some of my closest friends are not like that. They don't cry for nothing. <laughs> not only that, they got to have like, so when they talk about emotions, it's, it's more academically than experientially. It's got to like the Tin Man um, from the Wizard of Oz, if I only had a heart. <laughs> and I'm not taking shots at them. It is what it is. We have great conversations about them. And some of, some of you who are engaging right now are like me. And some of you engage right now like some of my closest friends. And God has brought you to Brooks so you can regain your soul. Praise God for you, right? Um, but here's, here's why I bring that out. Often when we talk about compassion, we, we like to focus on the people who are quote unquote like me, who have more emotional attunement, and so they feel differently. The problem is, compassion is more than a feeling. And so if you have this feeling, but it doesn't show up in action, you don't actually have compassion at all. I can keep going. Because compassion is more than a feeling, it's also this outward action of care. Care is compassion at work for the sake of somebody else's good. 
even if you aren't as emotive as other people, you aren't as emotionally in tune, that doesn't excuse you from being a compassionate person. Because one, you can step in with compassionate acts, but for all of us, we have the privilege and the responsibility to lean into the fullness of what Jesus is modeling, which is this visceral, intense feeling. I am experiencing the pain and plight of these harassed and helpless sheep, but this courageous call to action he continues to actually do his work of ministry. So you get to Matthew 14 and there's the crowds again and he has compassion on them and then he serves them, he feeds them, he does a miracle of provision. And then he continues to speak truth to them in parables, proclaiming the realness of the kingdom and this fuller life that's available. Come and follow me, for if you follow me, you will find rest. My burden is light and my yoke is... And he just keeps going. He continues to work these courageous acts, even though, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to I pull you in, but you push me away. He continues in that way with presence. But that's not the only thing he does. This is why the shift matters. This is why we need to close in this space. He calls people, his disciples, to do the very thing that he has been doing this whole time. What does it mean for us? The people of God have the privilege and the nobility and the responsibility to be the very hands and feet of the heart of God, to be those who join, come alongside others, in care, moving them towards life as God would intend. Now, there's some pretty straightforward, simple takeaways based on the rest of his actions. So he turns from the crowds, turning to the disciples, and he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. There is not a problem with the people. Yes, there's issues of their sin, but the problem is a scarcity of people who are willing to come alongside people for the sake of their good. The labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. He says, the harvest belongs to God. God's heart for the people is far greater than your heart could ever fathom. It's bigger than yours. God cares about them. God wants something for them. So you know what you do first and foremost? You pray to God to move on their behalf. Pray for God to move. <laughs> Simple, straightforward, yet loaded. Pray for God to move. Not only that, what's, what's interesting is this continues. So Matthew chapter 10, verse 1 and verse 5, as well as Luke chapter 10, verse 1, they give a more expansive picture of what's going to happen. And not only does he say, you know, pray for God to move. He says, plan to be an answer. Pray that God would send more laborers into his harvest to come alongside his people for the purposes of good, leading them towards the life that God would attend. You pray for that, but you plan to be an answer to that prayer. So pray as you're packing your bags to go. Because he sends them out. Matthew 10, 1. 
Matthew 10.5, Luke 10.1. He sends out those people who've received compassion to go be the very hands and feet of his heart. And what's even more stunning, and I can't escape, is that in Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, you have clear directions where he says, hey, you go to the lost sheep of, of Israel. That's not to neglect other people, but there's this, you go home. You go home. I am going to supply for the harvest from the harvest. So when you go home to your neighbors, those who knew you, Peter, as a fisherman, I wonder why you are now following this man, Jesus. You could share about my greatness. You go home. Supplying for the harvest from the harvest. And that's a scary endeavor because often the people who think they know us best belittle us when we want to share who God is and what God has done in our lives. But we could step into those spaces courageously because we know we are after people's good because their good is as important as our own. And their good being experienced has roots in the here and now, eventually leading to the then and there, where we get to forever experience the greatness and compassion of God and how it is most excellently seen at a cross where he confronts sin, yet pours out his life for the sake of others. So what does it mean for us? It means that we pray for God to move and we plan to be an answer. Only possible if we see through God's eyes. Because when we see through God's eyes, we respond as he would intend us. Let's pray. God, be with us. Um, capture our perspective with yours and propel us into action that accords with that which is true, beautiful, noble, and good. In your name we pray, Jesus, amen.